Welcome to Profiles. I'm Josh Brewer. On Profiles, we talk to artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia is the senior editor and Supreme Court correspondent at Slate.com. She writes the site's jurisprudence column and hosts Amicus, Slate's Supreme Court podcast. Dahlia has also written articles for the New York Times, the New Republic, the Washington Post, and has appeared on The Daily Show. She is currently working on a book about the four women who have served on the Supreme Court. Dahlia, welcome, and thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. Well, you know, I'd like to talk about your upcoming book and your reporting, but I'd also like to know just a little bit about your background and how you got interested in law. The really easy answer is I was one of those people who went to law school because I couldn't do math, so I couldn't get into med school. I was not really sure what I was doing there. I quit after the first year, and I had to beg my way back in. And I just always felt like I was really interested in the law, but I didn't know if I wanted to be a lawyer. So the truth is, I think I probably became most interested in the law after law school when I clerked, and I clerked for a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And then when I got to really see sort of judicial opinion writing and actually watch cases argued in front of federal appellate judges, I was like, wow, no, this is actually kind of cool. So I think it didn't really come alive for me as something that made a huge difference in people's lives until after law school. And uh, when did you start doing reporting on, on law? Did that come about soon after? Pretty soon after. This is the embarrassing, dark part of my story. I clerked in Reno, Nevada, and then I stayed in Reno at a divorce law firm for a couple of years. Um, How was that? That was just fascinating. That's the novel I haven't written yet. But it was really, you know, this very, very exclusive boutique divorce firm that did high-end divorces. And Reno, you know, was famously the divorce capital of this country for a long time. And there was just a lot of mayhem and madness around doing people's divorce and their custody and their, you know, always joke, you know, the annulment after the circus circus wedding the night before. There was quite a bit of those calls to the office. It was the whole practice was both fascinating and also just kind of heartbreaking in the way that dissolving marriages will be. How did you get involved in that? I I just stuck around Reno. After I clerked, the first job after I got was from this divorce firm, and I loved the lawyers there. It was really interesting. You know, the sort of emblematic story from that time was that all my classmates from Stanford Law School had gone off to very fancy boutique firms in San Francisco, and it was the beginning of the dot-com boom, so a lot of them were at Google and at eBay, and, you know, They'd be having these sushi carts coming down the hallways at their jobs. And I was in this two-lawyer firm in Reno breaking up marriages. It was so not what anyone else was doing. But it was very fun. And I learned a ton. And I actually got to sit in trials, which is a nice thing for a baby lawyer. And after two years, I was just, I can't do this anymore. I can't fight over people's Tupperware for one more day. And then how did you go into reporting after breaking up people's marriages. And <laughs> <laughs> As if that wasn't fun uh-huh. enough. I was just absolutely driving across the country, and I was not sure what I was going to do next. I was pretty sure I was going to have to nanny for my big brother for a couple of years until I sorted How myself out. I was 20, late 20s. I literally happened to be in Washington, D.C. when Slate, which was this fledgling internet magazine, was covering the Microsoft trial was this big antitrust trial at the time, and I was sleeping on a friend's futon, and they called her and said, we need somebody, our reporter, who was Michael Lewis, just left. We need somebody to 
at least occupy the seat and keep the press pass. Uh, do you want to do it? And she said, no, I have a job, but there's this person who will get off my futon. <laughs> so maybe she'll. And I literally stumbled my way into covering a huge trial for Slate, which I had not heard of. And the next thing I knew when the trial was over, I literally was at my brother's basement thinking about starting to nanny for him. And Slate called back and said, where'd you go? Come cover the court for us. Serendipity, right place, right time, right moment. The internet was really exploring sort of new forms and new kinds of journalism. I was able to go into the court and write kind of differently about the Supreme Court. And it all kind of was just perfect storm of lucky, happy circumstances. And from the beginning, you were covering the Supreme Court. Yeah. From the beginning, after the Microsoft trial, they put me at the court and said, have fun with it. And the court you know, hadn't credentialed an online person yet. I think I was the first. And I sort of looked around and said, well, you know, everybody here is pretty serious. A lot of them, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners and serious. This is a beat that nobody leaves, you know, like toes first. This is a great beat. So people have been covering it for decades. And I just said, well, I'm going to try to do this fun and kind of goofy. And I'm not sure anyone's going to read it, but my dad will. And that was sort of how it started is right from the beginning. I felt like a little bit irreverent, a little bit poking fun at the sort of self-seriousness of the institution. And so 15 years later, I'm still there. So you've been working for Slate for 15 years, and you've had a podcast, which has been, you said, a year? Yeah, it's one called, year. Yeah. Your podcast is called Amicus, and, and that refers to a person who is not directly part of a case, but advises that case? Yeah. I mean, it technically means friend of the court. And you can file an amicus brief, which just means I'm a friend of the court. I have some stake in this. You have to lay out what your stake is. And then you just get to write a brief to the court. And so I think we like the name amicus because it was sort of friendly. And the idea was always we were going to try to be a bridge between what was happening at the court, which, as you know, is sometimes covered in a pretty rarefied fashion, and all those people out there who don't get to be in the room like I do. When I first started listening to the podcast, I actually had to look that up. I didn't know what it meant. How do you report to an audience who might not know law or legalese? It's a great question, and it's always been my challenge, even as a print reporter, was that I felt like there is an amazing corpus of reporting done by law professors for law professors. In other words, you can get on any number of fantastic legal blogs and read incredibly thorough, good accounts of what happens in the court by people who, by the way, wrote the treatise, you know. And so I felt like that wasn't space that was useful, but that a lot of people that I knew looked at what happened, not just at the Supreme Court, but I think in courts in general in the legal system, and just it was like science reporting. It was just completely inscrutable to them. And there was a lot of jargon, and there was a lot of assumed knowledge that people didn't have. And I felt, and I still feel more and more, that what happens at the court is so foundational to who we are, right? I mean, they're deciding gay marriage. They're, are they going to uphold Obamacare? You know, are they going to uphold you know, provisions of the Fair Housing Act, the Voting Rights Act? This is unbelievably consequential. It inflects on every piece of our lives, and yet nobody can understand what's going on. And I really felt this, and this is just a dumb anecdote, but I always felt like I'd be at the bus stop with the other mommies, and they'd say, yeah, I don't read about the court. I don't understand it. And I'd be like, oh, my God, you have a PhD in physics. You know, like, you need to engage with this. And so I always felt like a huge part 
of my own project as a journalist was to try to demystify and to try to talk about the court in ways, both in the podcast and in my writing, that even if you were reading your very first article, you would be able to penetrate what this system basically is, what this conflict is, and how it matters to you. And so I do think of it as kind of modified science reporting or sports reporting, where I'm trying really hard to explain it, not to the people in the industry, they know it better than I do, but to the people out there who think it's too hard. Well, and I, I think it's funny you say sports reporting. I actually felt the same way. When I first started listening to your podcast, it was almost like a weekly roundup. And this is the team, we get to know them, we get to know the players, basically. And that seemed accessible in a way that I hadn't heard before. Was this because you started it on the internet? Uh, partly. I think it's also because my own view of things is that the Supreme Court wants to position itself as the oracle at Delphi, right? You know, pay no attention to what goes on in this marble building. Incredibly smart people are talking about very complicated things. You know, all you need to do is know you're in good hands. And that's not going to work in a democracy, right? That's not a third co-equal branch of government. That's crazy. And so I always felt that my job was to bring the people to life and bring the voices to life and to try to help the people who are not in the building. And this is important, Josh. There are a handful of seats. It's a tiny building. People stood in line for four days to get into the gay marriage arguments in the rain. There were parties in that case who could not get into the building. Nobody gets in there. There's no television. I'm in there. There's no television. There's audio that's released a week later. And the entire kind of secrecy around it drives me nuts because this is, as I said, historic, important, consequential moments in our history, and we're locked out of it. And so my feeling has always been, and this is the kind of subversive part of the podcast, if I could do nothing else but bring the audio and put it in a podcast in a form that people will listen to, and they can hear Justice Scalia, and they can hear Justice Kennedy, and they can be in that room, then that's kind of what I really desperately want to do is make this about people and real conflicts and help people understand that it's not this kind of mystery box in the middle of D.C. that nobody can penetrate. And having the audio recordings, is it not relatively new that they release them so quickly? I mean, you put them on your podcast, and I really enjoy hearing the actual audio. It's a great question. And the answer is, traditionally, all the audio was released after um, oral arguments. The court makes an audio recording largely for archival purposes. And then in 2000, after Bush v. Gore, uh, then-Chief Justice William Rehnquist said, hey, this is a really important case. People might want to listen to Bush v. Gore. And so he made same-day audio available. Really? And people listened. They listened in their cars, and they watched C-SPAN, and they're like, oh, my God, I'm in the court. I'm hearing it. Uh, and the court promptly did that a handful of times uh, for big, big cases, for Heller, the guns case, and for Grutter, the affirmative action case. They did it for a couple of cases, and then they just stopped. And it was crazy because there's no cost to the court of letting people listen live. And for a while, they had no same-day audio. And a few years ago, they enacted what I think is the sort of worst-of-all-worlds policy, which is that audio goes online about 5 o'clock on Friday. And you know as a journalist that 5 o'clock on Friday is not a great place to dump important information for the week. And so people weren't really using it. And really one of the 
purposes for me of Amicus was to try to say, okay, we'll take it at 5 o'clock Friday and we'll put it up Saturday morning. But we want people to be able to hear because I think if you can't hear, you're listening to people interpret. It's not the same. And so that was the slightly subversive, you know, if the court's going to dump it 5 o'clock on Friday, we will do our show then. You'll play it. Yeah. In your podcast, you kind of get to know the personalities, which is is what you're looking to achieve, yeah? Right. The personalities, we, we try to interview the advocates who argued at the court, and sometimes it's really fun to hear them listen to themselves three days earlier and go, oh, my God, I can't believe I did I with that my answer. Um, but really, again, I think that there's this intensely human and theatrical, right, Shakespearean, you know, side of this. These justices wear black robes and they pop out from this red curtain and they sit at this huge dais and most Americans will never see or hear it. And so it just seems to me that there are no good reasons that we shouldn't be trying really hard to open up a channel between what happens in there, which affects all of us, and our access to what happens in there. Your job seems fun. It's so fun. I have the best job in the world. It's really very cool. And it's very cool that even though I'm trying to subtly undermine the court's sense of its own decorousness and gravitas, I'm still such a deeply captive, Patty Hearst, like lover of the institution. I mean, I just, it's not as though I'm there to shame and belittle them. I just feel as though the more I cover the court, the more I love it, the more I admire it. I have such deep regard for the people both on the bench and the advocates in front of the court, just the way they speak to each other, the level of seriousness and civility. I just think particularly in the moment that we're in in political discourse where it's just so, I think the technical legal term is yucky. It's really heartening to see a system with just deep, intense learning and tradition and respect. And so I think that the justices who understand what I'm doing, understand that even though I'm kind of poking at it with a stick, I'm doing it out of deep reverence and love and not trying to topple the place down. Do you know the justices? I mean, in your reporting, do you get to know them or are they behind the chambers? Different reporters have really different approaches. I've met, I think, almost all of them at one point or another. I've interviewed a couple of them. Some reporters really try to seek a lot of access and sit down for interviews. I think I decided many years ago that access is hard to get and that I wasn't really sure what the payoff was, that I wasn't completely certain that trying to get access was going to be the thing that would best serve my readers. And so I think I just decided, and it goes back to the sports writing metaphor, that I was going to be a really good sports writer, and I was just going to cover arguments and not get too fussed about who would give me an interview and who didn't. So by happenstance, I think I've met virtually everyone and certainly got to interview Justice Ginsburg a few years ago for uh, Glamour magazine, and it was a thrill. Those things are really thrilling. But by and large, to me, the magic and the mystery of it is what goes on at oral argument and not the kind of behind-the-scenes they don't tell you that much anyway. There's no scoops on this beat. There's very little searching through dumpsters and getting stories and following stories. These are nine pretty 
boring people <laughs> who go to their jobs. So it's not like reporting on the Hill where you're trying to cultivate you know, connections and get scoops and get leaks. It's pretty much the opposite of that. Well, and it kind of connects to a question I had, which is journalists frequently talk about the political leanings of Supreme Court justices, but legal scholars are hesitant to say that they um, have political opinion or are influenced by p- political opinion. Where do you fall in the divide, or what do you? How do you think about that? It's it's such an insightful question because I think that one of the things our editors always put into our stories are appointed by a Democrat, appointed by a Republican, right? It seems critical for the reader to locate who this judge is based on who appointed them, and this understandably makes judges and justices really frustrated because they feel like that's signaling something that is not necessarily true and certainly not the most important thing about them. And at the same time, uh, I think it can't be the case that judges are, as Chief Justice John Roberts famously said, just umpires. They're just neutral boxes of knowledge who call balls and strikes, and there's no ideological or political valence to what they do. And so I think, you know, my favorite way to answer your question is to describe a book that um, was written by a professor called Keith Bybee, and it's called All Judges Are Political Except for When They're Not. And to me, it kind of sums up my answer to your question, which is, of course, there's something determinative about their politics and their ideology, except what they do really is different from what elected officials do. And toggling between those two truths, holding those in your head at the same time, is really difficult for a court reporter, because if we believed it was all just politics, we probably couldn't do this job. But if we believe it's just oracular magic that comes down from the top of a mountain, we'd be naive. And so I think you're always trying to balance those two realities. And on good days and bad days, you do a different job of that. Hmm. Is your job to tie those realities? I feel that it's my job to try to write at the interstices of those realities. In other words, I think the interesting stuff comes up when John Roberts, Republican, you know, appointed by George Bush to fulfill the, you know, Nixonian promise of turning the court to the right, votes to uphold Obamacare. What happened there? What happens when Anthony Kennedy, another Republican appointee, not only votes in favor of gay marriage, but votes strongly and writes the most eloquent pro-gay rights opinion we've ever seen? And this happens a lot, Josh. People don't see it. People have this notion that this court, you know, hands down 80 cases a year and they're all 5-4. And that's not true. This is a court that is often unanimous, often 8-1, to one, not as often 5-4 and not always fractured on the 5-4 lines that you would expect. And that to me is where the action is. And I think that that really is right there at that seam between law and politics has a lot to do, by the way, with experience and what your life is like and, you know, what influenced you in this particular area of doctrine. But I think that the problem with the narrative that says it's all just politics, the only thing that matters is who appointed you, is it kind of misses all the good human stuff in the middle. That's what's fun about the court. There's such pressure in a legislature to fall on those lines, you know, to sort of self-identify strongly based on, you know, these are the people who put me in office. This is what they expect. This is what the party expects. And 
more and more, I think there is these two silos of parties who can't talk to each other because of that in this country. And so what I love about the court is there's still this obligation for an hour in a case to listen to the other side and to ask them questions. And when they answer really well, to be like, huh, that's a really good answer. I read your brief. That was kind of amazing. And so there's space for encountering ideas that you don't agree with that we almost never get, certainly in the media, certainly in political discourse. And so for me, the court is kind of like modeling this last bastion of speaking to each other and hearing each other. And for all that everybody talks about the nastiness of the opinions, and they were nasty this year, 99% of the time, it's civil and it's smart and it's thorough. And that's just, how can we not be lit up by the possibility of that kind of discourse in the rest of the world. I'd like to talk a little bit about your book. Sure. The impetus really was covering the Sotomayor and the Kagan confirmation hearings and sitting in those hearings and listening to just the strange toxicity of the conversations around gender and race and identity politics at the court. What are the confirmation hearings? What are these? This is when, after the president nominates you, you have to be confirmed by the Senate. And this happens in the most spectacularly awful fashion where literally for five days on C-SPAN, you sit in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and answer their questions. And it's terrible. It's terrible for the nominee because the nominee can't possibly answer the questions. And mostly each of the senators is just getting up and gibbering about something that is going to look good on TV. And after five days, it's just a marathon of ugliness and a lot of gotcha and a lot of, you wrote this thing one time in 1972, and it's just not useful. And if you're not going to have cameras in the U.S. Supreme Court, do you really want to put cameras on this utterly silly interview process? Is this how we want Americans to think about what judges are and what justice are and what they're going to become? And so I think we've completely flipped it. We watched this really, I think, sordid, very, very political and ugly interview, and then we don't get to watch the justices do their work, and that makes no sense. So watching Sonia Sotomayor's hearing in particular, I was really struck by this question of, is she biased? And Sotomayor had given several speeches, but a very famous speech in 2001 at Berkeley where she had said, and this is she was already a federal appeals court judge, and they asked her to be at some event talking about gender and being a minority and judging, and she said, sometimes a wise Latina woman and a white man are going to come to different results. Based on her experience, she will come to a better result than he would. And this was riffing on Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman at the Supreme Court, very famously used to say, a wise old woman and a wise old man will always come to the same conclusion. Their gender makes no difference. And O'Connor would also paradoxically, at the very end of her career, when she was replaced by John Roberts and word got to her that he was going to replace her, she said he would be perfect for this job if he were a woman. So which is it? Does gender matter or does it not? And it kind of goes back to the it matters except when it doesn't. And Sotomayor was really grilled both before her confirmation hearings and during her hearings about her wise Latina comments and whether that meant that she was just in the tank for women and she was completely biased. 
And Barack Obama, in fairness, kind of set her up because he said, oh, the quality she has that's so important to me is empathy. And empathy got coded somehow in the public discourse as she's completely biased. She's always going to have a thumb on the scale for women and minorities. And so the hearings were really, I thought, kind of toxic and silly. And they asked her all these questions about being biased. And I thought, this is nuts. You know, when did we default to white men are always objective and fair? And anyone who is not a white man is always biased and empathetic for some minority group. And it just showed me that this is not a smart way to talk about gender and judging. So I just got really interested in what the studies showed about how women are different than men and what happens with women judges when you put them on the bench. And I think the book was an attempt to explore this duality of, well, of course gender makes a difference at the court. It can't not make a difference. But is it a bad thing? Is it bias or is it something that enriches and ennobles us? And that's what I've been trying to struggle with. And the truth is, like Sandra Day O'Connor, I really do feel like women and men are the same and do not say that we come to different conclusions. And like Sandra Day O'Connor, I wish John Roberts had been a woman. So I think we're all struggling with this slightly schizophrenic feeling about diversity and what we want to see represented at the court. And the book was trying to delve into a smarter way to talk about it than just bias, bias, bias. In what way is it important to have women on the court? I think it's so important. And I think at the most simple level, it's just to have a court that looks like you, that looks like the country. And I always say, you know, we have to remember the court that decided Roe versus Wade, nine men. You know, the court that decided Griswold versus Connecticut, the right to contraception, nine men. So it can't be the case that men can't come to good outcomes for women. But I think it's important for the legitimacy of people looking at the court to say, oh, yeah, no, they took this into account. They, they look like me. And the way I really saw this play out was during the Sotomayor confirmation hearings because she really was the first Latina at the court. And I was all excited about her for different reasons. You know, she was an important, prominent judge on the Second Circuit, and she was someone who I had a lot of respect for. But every radio show I did for a month around those hearings was just young Latina women calling in and saying, oh, my God, there's going to be one of me on the court. And when you would turn around and look at the people in the gallery who had stood in line for hours to sit there for just five minutes and watch this hearing. It was just these 14-year-old Hispanic girls who never could have believed that someone who looked like them was going to be on the court. And so I think at the most basic level, this is a powerful, powerful thing to have a court that's representative of the people in this country. And it helps you feel like your voice is being heard there. The most important thing that I think judges do, and Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the most famous Supreme Court jurists, once said, the life of the law is experience. And I think what judges do when they lock themselves, the nine of them, in a conference room and deliberate about a case is they tell their stories and they say, here's some stuff you don't know about what it's like when X. And we know this because we know that Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American at the court, used to just talk and talk and talk at conference, and everyone would just shut up and listen because he was saying, I grew up in the Jim Crow South. You want to hear a little something about what it was like to get mm -hmm. beat up for trying to walk into a courtroom and litigate a case? I'll tell you. And Justice Scalia, Justice Kennedy, justices who ideologically could not have disagreed with him more would say, he changed my life. 
And Linda Greenhouse, who writes about the court for The New York Times, famously said, you don't know what you don't know. Finding out what you don't know is such a critical part, it seems to me, of this process. And so what I've come around to believing is that for women to sit there and say in a conference, here's why the Fair Pay Act case is important. Here's why a woman can't know in that Lily Ledbetter case within a couple days that she's being discriminated against in her wages. Here's why the women at Walmart, the class action suit where the women of Walmart sued, here's why those women didn't like being told that they should be at home taking care of their kids. These are stories that women tell really effectively. And I think it seems to me that where women have always influenced the way justices deliberate is that before that was their wives, right? For most of history, their wives and their daughters were saying, here's why this matters. But I think to have a woman in the room saying, you don't know what you don't know, but I'm going to tell you. And to have a minority like Sotomayor say, you don't know what you don't know, I think it's just critical. And I would just say this as my coda. This Supreme Court, the current Supreme Court, is the narrowest constituted demographic court we've ever seen, by which I mean every one of the justices went to Harvard or Yale Law School. Most of them come from New York or California. There's only two justices that come from the whole center part of the country, flyover country. They've all had virtually the same job experience. They either came up as a federal judge or they came up in one of the administrations through the Justice Department. This is not the Warren Court. This is not the Burger Court. We no longer have a former governor. We no longer have a former state senator, somebody who litigated civil rights cases. All those people have fallen away. And what we have is people who are sort of hydroponically grown in underground labs to become justices. And they, with all due respect, have had really narrow life experiences and career experiences and educational experiences. And so it seems to me now more than ever is a good time to have a conversation about how bringing people with completely different backgrounds onto the court matters in ways it didn't matter back when we were nine white men still having governors, having people who were attorneys general, having people who just litigated case after case after case. All those people are gone. And so I think we've replaced one kind of diversity with another. But I think the kind of diversity that we have lost, educational and professional and just experiential diversity, is really important. Well, I think you're a wonderful voice in the conversation. And thank you for being here today. Oh, Josh, thank you for having me. And thank you really for listening to the podcast. And thank you for getting yourself to really care about the court. It's so important.